0: Daily Premier League action and reaction. This is Football Social Daily.
1: Welcome to Football Social Daily. Good to have you with us. If this is your first time, well, you've come to the right place for daily updates on everything Premier League. There is a new episode of this podcast every single day offering insight and opinion on the latest news from the English top flight. Get yourself subscribed to the show so you are always up to date with the latest. Also, if you want to listen to the latest news on your team, you can get updates via your smart speaker now. Just ask to open Sport Social and you can get an update on whoever it is you support in the Premier League. There is more information on that as well as more news at sport-social.co.uk. But on to the business of today's podcast. On today's show, we're going to be talking about the Premier League bending its rules for Manchester United just three games into the season. Should we all be getting outraged at such favouritism? We'll decide later. It does involve a certain Mr Cristiano Ronaldo. Also, if your team stopped one of its star international players from taking to the World Cup qualifiers this week, then maybe you should be worried. You could have to do without that individual for a while, as the likes of Mexico and Chile take objection to you withholding their stars. And of course, we're going to take a look at England's professional display last night, as the three Lions dispatched Hungary with ease in the first of their three World Cup qualifying matches this week. To do all that, I've got Nile McCorn on the podcast today. Morning, Niall. Good morning, Jim. Good morning, Marley. Morning. And that's Marley Anderson. Right, let's get to business. Let's start with last night's victory in Budapest for the Three Lions, which puts Gareth Southgate's team a step closer to qualifying for the World Cup in Qatar. It was Hungary nil. It was England four. Do England deserve a lot of credit for this one, Nile? Because Hungary were pretty impressive in the European Championships. They didn't offer much going forward, but they certainly contained teams at the Euros. And here we've got an England team who sometimes have struggled to break down stubborn defences back in four. It was a decent display.
2: It was a decent display and actually, in all fairness, I caught the second half of the game and I'm glad I did because by all accounts, the first half wasn't anywhere near as exciting. Yeah, I was out playing uh, seven-a-side football myself and then uh, came back for the second half, had my spaghetti bolognese and a glass of red wine and watched um, England put some racists (laughs) to the sword. It was quite a pleasant watch, actually, to be honest. I'm sure we'll get onto that in a little bit, but you're absolutely right. I think in terms of the on-field things that Hungary have been able to achieve in the last few months... They impressed during the Euros and although they finished bottom of their group, it was a group that included France, Portugal and Germany. So in all fairness, you can't really complain at finishing the bottom of the group when you have got those other sort of power hitters in the pool alongside you. But they will be disappointed with the way that they fared against England last night. I think they would have fancied it on their own soil. 60,000 raucous fans inside uh, the Pushkash Arena in Budapest. And uh, it was a professional performance from England. And once again, there were questions when the team news dropped about Gareth Southgate. Why is he playing two holding midfielders? I thought Declan Rice and especially Calvin Phillips from what I saw was absolutely outstanding yet again. And I just think that, you know, this guy, Gareth Southgate, has led us to our first major final in international football since the 60s. And there are still people that think he doesn't know what he's doing. Can you not just at least trust him? Now that he's got us to the Euros final, it might not have been a vintage passage to the final. You know, I know we didn't play a a great array of teams, which is the excuse that people use in the World Cup, but we beat who was put in front of us and got to the final and fell at the final hurdle on penalties. Uh, thanks to some, you know, young players who probably couldn't deal with the pressure as well as maybe they should have done. And they'll learn from that. And I think this is the start of something for England. They've kind of got that bond and they've got that kind of camaraderie. And they're the most likable group of England players that I can remember. I think they do deserve credit for the way that they dispatched Hungary because that's what it was. It 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 was quite convincing and really 4-0, I think. Probably flatters Hungary a little bit. I think it could have been six, seven, could have been more. England created plenty of chances in the second half. And that's credit to them because we discussed on yesterday's Football Social Daily whether there could be a possible hangover from the Euros. You look at Italy... Last night they drew one apiece. Um, I think Spain lost last night to Sweden. So, you know, you're looking at these international sides who have had reasonable Euros and not all of them are getting the job done. But England did. They topped the group. They're five points clear in Group I in the World Cup qualification group. You can't really ask for much more than that. Clean sheet to boot. Well played, England. And moving on to the next game against Andorra at the weekend.
1: It was probably one of those results that was more important to kind of move on from the Euros than it was necessarily to get the result itself because there would be plenty of time to catch up had it gone wrong in Hungary but it was a very professional very convincing result for England in the end, Mali. As Nile said finished 0-0 the first half. Did you spot any signs in that first half that this could potentially turn into a rout?
3: Um, not really in the first half. I mean there was barely anything to talk about to be honest. Um, I, I think was, there was a
1: single shot on target for either team in the first half, was there?
3: No, I think I think the best performance came from whoever was in the highlights truck trying to uh, produce something from that first <laughs> half to talk about, to be honest. Uh, but we see that a lot with England. You know, they flatter to deceive in the first half and then they find a gear and, and find what they're trying to do in the second. Um, maybe they get a rocket up them at half-time and, and you know, shouted out a little bit and g up a little bit, but...
1: You can't imagine Gareth Southgate <laughs> delivering the hairdryer treatment though, can you? No, he's, he's, he's more, I think he's he more an arm around the shoulder type manager. He's a, c- c- come on, Harry, you can do a bit better than that type, rather than shouting in his face.
3: Yeah, it's uh, yeah, I, I can't see him booting um, booting boots at people like Fergie did back in the day. But it's um, yeah, whatever he does, it, it seems to work, doesn't it? So it's mm. great for England to go out and, and put um, a very. Well, horrible atmosphere to to the to punish them sort of thing. Um and you know, send them send them away, even though there was no England fans there, um, to, to put a smile on England fans' faces, um, and get the uh, get the the weird atmosphere out of the way with a
1: convincing win. What did you make of Declan Rice? Niles said he thought Declan Rice and Calvin Phillips were excellent at the kind of holding, the pivot, if you like, is the modern term for the role they play in this England team. I'm really biased about Declan Rice. I think he's a fantastic player. He got the goal at the end, which I think the Hungarian goalkeeper will be very disappointed he let squirm under his body. But I thought Declan Rice had another really important game for England. I think he's becoming a vital player to England's midfield. And what frustrates me as I see England fans constantly questioning what he brings to that team. But was last night's performance one of those performances where you're left in no doubt that he is important for Gareth Southgate and the way he sets up?
3: I am I am absolutely not on the same page as anybody who can't work out what Declan Rice brings to a football team. It makes no sense to me how people can't understand what he does. Like he's he's the he's the one that wins the ball back the most out of anyone. Like if you're going through midfield he will put his foot in he won't just like Jockey you and try and push you into the safe position. He'll get his foot in and he'll try and win the ball back, and I think that's huge. And you know, people say, why do why do we play two um, two holder midfielders against a poor team? Well, number one, they're not that poor a team. They they played poor last night. Don't get me wrong, but they're not that bad a team. And number two, their best attack, their best mid, best player is their attacking midfielder Dominic Shobaslai and he plays in that half space between like behind the striker and in front sort of behind our our midfield so you need someone who's going to take take control of him and and track him and tackle him when he gets the ball and closing down and all the rest of it that's why Rice and Phillips were in there because they had another they had their formation had two attacking midfielders so by rights you need two defensive midfielders really to to stop them getting at your back uh, your back four your center backs so that makes that makes perfect sense to me um also if you want to play a 4231 you have to have two defensive midfielders If you want to play, you know, Bellingham, he probably doesn't play as deep as as Phillips and Rice. He probably plays slightly more box-to-box. That's not... it's like a 4-3-3 in the middle of a three. Exactly. Most likely. Exactly. It's not suited to the Mm. system. So once you pick the system, you almost have to pick Phillips and Rice. And they were fantastic in the Euros.
2: They've never put a foot wrong for England. Um, What's the issue?
1: I think they play really well together, don't
2: they? Yeah, exactly. And what I will say, and you might disagree with me as a West Ham fan, I think Declan Rice is better for England than he is for West Ham. And hear me out on this. The reason I think that is because he's showing and standing out amongst better players. And I think that England have better players than West Ham do. And I don't think that's an outrageous statement to make. (laughs) Which leads me to... How dare you! Yeah, exactly. How dare you! After Masawaku is on his way to our offices right now. (laughs) Which leads me to think that, imagine if Declan Rice had better players around him at club level. And that's not Mm. me to say he should leave West Ham. I mean he's one of West Ham's best players if not their best player. But if he's still standing out in an England team which includes the likes of, you know, Mason Mount and Harry Kane and Raheem Sterling et al, then just how good could he be? And I think that that is a valid question. I actually think I prefer watching him for England. I think alongside Phillips, they just complement each other so perfectly. And actually it leads me to question how good Declan Rice could be if he had, you know, elite talent around him I know he's been linked with Chelsea Chelsea have decided to go for uh, Saul and on loan haven't they from Atletico Madrid but I mean an English midfielder learning offers of some of the best other midfielders in the world like if he had gone to Chelsea he would have been learning off Conte and Jorginho and players like that and I just think this guy has got plenty of potential still only in his early 20s very likable character um, I'm really excited to see how how he gets on in the future. It pains me to say it, but I think his future lies away from West Ham because,
1: as you say, you only have to look at Harry Kane at Spurs. Like You don't want a player who is one of the best in the world in their position, which I have no doubt Declan Rice will grow to be. You don't want them to see him, them finishing their career without any trophies. And that means, I mean, as much as I love my football club, we're not going to be challenging for the Premier League any time in the next Million years, uh, yeah,
0: exactly. <laughs> I was gonna, I was gonna
1: say million years, but then I wasn't sure whether that was uh, that would that'd be underestimating Enough. it. Yeah. And speaking of Harry Kane, what do you make of his performance last night, Niall? Because he didn't have a shooting boots on. I don't think he got the goal, which I thought really unfairly was described as the by the commentators as a poacher's goal. And I don't think a diving header can ever be a poacher's goal. The amount of skill and accuracy that has to go into a diving header. But he did get the goal. But he also missed three really big chances that normally you'd expect Harry Kane to gobble up. It was almost as if, and I don't know whether I'm creating a narrative that isn't there, but it was almost as if he had other things on his mind
2: considering what's happened over the summer. Yeah, I'm not sure about that because he scored a few goals for Spurs, hasn't he, already this season, whether that be in European competition or not. I still think that that's relevant. And I agree with you about the poachers' goal. I mean, he, he anticipated the ball dropping at the near post. And if you watch the replay of the goal, there's at least three Hungarian players who are just left in his wake. And that's unusual to say that about someone as slow as Harry Kane, that a defender's been left in his wake. But certainly that was the situation. And, you know, he anticipated that three or four yard, you know, radius around the apex of the six yard box at that near post you know, area, that near post region. And he diverted the header beyond the goalkeeper. I thought the goalkeeper was poor for three of the England goals, actually. I think he probably could have saved that Harry Kane header. But it was direct, it was powerful. And again, Sterling kind of tried to drive the ball across. And I think it might have taken a deflection off the defender, fired into the ground and skipped back up again And he just anticipated that the ball would drop there. And I think that that is the sign of a really good marksman is someone who knows where the ball is going to drop in those dangerous areas. The three Hungarian players had no idea where that ball was going, but Harry Kane did. So for his goal, I think you have to say more skillful than it is a poacher's finish. It wasn't like, you know, he was kind of waiting for a rebound or a tap in or anything like that. He really did anticipate where the ball was going to drop and he made the most of it. But I will say with the other chances you refer to, there were a couple of times where Harry Kane got in those positions where we've seen him score time and time and time again in the Premier League for Tottenham. And he missed. I mean, there was one where he hit straight at the goalkeeper. There was another couple of opportunities where he thought he should really be scoring that. And actually in the Euros, Harry Kane running through on that, you're thinking goal every time. And I was last night when I was watching. I was thinking that's a goal. And it it never materialised. Thankfully, England had enough in the tank to smash four past Hungary, thanks to some poor goalkeeping as well, as you say. But yeah, definitely Harry Kane. Not a vintage performance from him, but he still scored and had plenty of chances. And I think that just goes to show the quality of England and the quality of a player like Harry Kane that even though he's missed three or four edge chances you know that you can just write it off as a bad day at the office didn't have his shooting boots on whatever cliche you want to use because you know the next time that happens he will be burying those chances so I don't think it's an endemic problem with Harry Kane just think it was one of those things where you know unfortunately for him he missed those opportunities and yet still grabbed a goal so yeah an unusual performance from Kane out of character I suppose you could say but I don't think that's of any concern for Spurs or England Also a demonstration of England's
1: strength and depth as well, I guess, that
2: your main man, your front man is not
1: getting the goals, he's not taking his chances and still you managed to put four past a decent opposition. It kind of shows that you don't, as an England team, we don't need to rely on a Harry Kane or whether it was a Wayne Rooney or whoever it was in the past, which is real progress for us as a national team. We have to talk about I don't want to talk about it, but we have to talk about the booing of the taking of the knee at the start of the game, the racist abuse that some of the black players on England's team received during the game, the cups that were thrown by the Hungarian fans onto the pitch as well. It seems that we've seen time and time again, particularly, unfortunately, when teams from the East of Europe visit teams, sorry, teams from the West of Europe visit teams from the East of Europe. Um, I mean, What's there there left to do here, Marley? I mean, stadium closures don't seem to work. We've seen that action from UEFA before. So what steps can be taken by FIFA this time going forward to kind of hammer out this this racism that is still very prevalent in football on an international basis?
3: That's a million-dollar question, isn't it? Um, I don't know. I don't know, to be honest. Um, Other than chucking teams out of tournaments, it's... Kinda, you're always gonna lose, really. Um, they're all they're always gonna be there. They don't care whether they're whether they people think they're in the right or wrong. That's what they want to do. That's how they're programmed to to boo everything, to boo everything that calls for equality and all the rest of it. Um, I'm sick of talking about it, to be honest. But it, it keeps happening. And as well with with the only being home fans at the game last night, it was even. Louder, there was no even like comeback from from any England fans because none of them were allowed to travel. So, um, I don't know. Points deductions, chucking teams out. Um, but the way things are going now, you know, if you start doing that, you're gonna have no one left in tournaments, you're gonna have eight, eight team tournaments because it happens in all kinds of countries over there. We've seen it in Bulgaria a couple of years ago, um, it's happened in, um, obviously, thingy last night, Hungary last night. Happens in Romania, all these other places that that are over there. Um, so you know what what do you do? I don't know. It's it's a bit of an unwinnable situation for me.
2: I don't want to get too political on this, but Hungary is, in my understanding, quite a right wing country. Um, and their prime minister, um, not too many months ago, I don't think, basically, lobbied for the creation of what he called a new European right wing force for. Our type of people, in quotation marks. That is scary discourse. That is scary discourse from the leader of a country who is using terms like our type of people. You know, you don't need to be a specific type of person to play football. And if you love the game and you enjoy the game, whoever's playing the game shouldn't bother you. And um, I don't think we saw that on display last night. In Hungary, which is extremely, extremely disappointing. And to be fair, I mean, I question some of the values of brands that we see. And I know this is kind of diverting down a bit of a rabbit hole away from football. But the Hungary national football team, their kit supplier is Adidas. What are Adidas going to do about what they saw last night? Or are they just going to do nothing? Yeah, that's a great, it's a great point because adidas are a huge brand one of the biggest sportswear brands or just general brands on planet earth and their their brand is associated with an occasion an incident a football team a national team who have now got this reputation or maybe already had that reputation for not being inclusive and welcoming and does that align with adidas's brand values i think it's a valid question
1: Yeah, I think it's a great point. I don't think it's one that has been raised very often, but any football team, international or at club level, has huge investment and huge deals with the likes of Adidas or drink sponsors or food sponsors, whoever it is. And it's probably up to those brands to take action. And that is something that can physically hurt a national team and will cause them to take action. I think it's a really valid point that. I think what we have to say as well is... It's quite easy to point fingers at these Eastern European nations where the trouble does tend to be coming from because they are less diverse populations. There are a lot of right-leaning governments in that part of the world and go, oh, what are they doing? They're doing it wrong. How dare they have this attitude towards players? But there is an element of we need to get our own house in order still as Absolutely, well. Absolutely, Jim. Because yeah. look look at the, look at what happened after the European finals. We are by no means... Absolutely. Like, I'm not sure whiter than white is the right term to use
2: in this scenario.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but, but you get what I mean. Yeah. It's a problem. It's a footballing problem. And and it's I, a society problem. It's not just a problem with these nations.
2: Yeah, I agree. And I think Gareth Southgate even basically paraphrased exactly what you said in a way in his pre-match press conference um, when he was asked about the possibility of you know, racism and racial abuse from a section of Hungarian supporters, I think he said, yeah, we, we need to look at ourselves first. We need to get our own house in order because, as you say, this country is far from idyllic and far from correct in terms of the attitudes that some people have. And, uh, you know, we can sit here and uh, and condemn as three white blokes and you know, a bunch of other white blokes being racist but there's the old saying that people in glass houses shouldn't throw stones and I definitely think that I'm with you in that one in the sense that we need to try and address the issues we face in the Premier League and much closer to home before we start really pointing the finger at others we can point the finger and say it's wrong you shouldn't do it but we should be setting examples rather than uh, effectively accusing someone you know pop calling the kettle black so to speak
1: FIFA have announced they are going to launch an investigation into the incidents. I mean, that's one thing. It's great they're taking some kind of proactive action. These investigations often lead to minimal fines and very little action. So we'll wait to see actually what FIFA decide will be the punishment, if any, for Hungary after that behaviour in Budapest.
3: Just to end on a slightly uh, more positive point, did, you, did anyone see uh, Pat Frost, the England kit man's tweet yesterday? No. No. After the game, he said, by the way, we lost six balls in amongst the Ultras and they were buzzing. They thought they were nicking our balls, but the Hungarian FA gave us them for the warm-up, so they nicked
1: their own balls. <laughs> <laughs> uh, fair enough. Well, that's, that's, that's a good, a positive note to step well, Is it a positive note? Inco- I don't know. Anyway,
2: Well, well I, I quite liked, I quite liked Declan Rice and Raheem Sterling drinking out of a yeah, beer cup that, that they've been pelted them. with. I really enjoyed that. Yeah, you know, that was oh, good. And I, 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 wor- the... I worried about that, though. What if someone's did one <laughs> Covid
3: I, what, what, yeah, yeah in a Covid yeah. time why you wouldn't drink someone else's drink right now would you I, I definitely wouldn't
1: there's a great Especially picture
3: off a bunch of races.
1: there's a great picture of after the first goal of um, Declan Rice drinking from one of the glasses that have been thrown onto the pitch and then you've got some of the England fans in a huddle And you can see Harry Kane's kind of being the teacher. He's pointing at Declan Rice kind of with a stern look on his face. Put that down! Stop that now! It's a great little picture. (laughs) Um, I think one of the things we have to say is England reacted well to the scenario, the cauldron of hate. They responded the best way they can in that scenario, and that is on the pitch. England didn't have any problems with players not being released for this game, but there were certain Premier League clubs that did withhold players from international duty, and that could cause repercussions down the line. We'll talk about it next on Football Social Daily.
0: Football Social Daily. Subscribe to the podcast now so you never miss an episode. Football Social Daily. Find more great sport at sport-social.co.uk. Welcome back to
1: Football Social Daily. We're in the midst of the World Cup qualifiers. A load of international games taking place. Some players were released for those international games and some players. Weren't and that could spell trouble for English clubs, Premier League clubs as well, who could now be banned from picking players that they failed to release for international duty for this round of the World Cup qualifiers. So far, Chilean, Mexican, and Paraguayan football associations have all contacted FIFA to complain that they were denied access to players, including Wolves Raul Jimenez and Newcastle's Paraguay midfielder Miguel Almiron. So that's a small sample at the moment of players that have had complaints launched about their availability. That could grow as more of the football associations from around the world get involved with this potentially. I guess it it kind of, Holds up questions about who has access to these players, who is responsible for the well-being of these players. And I guess at the end of the day, Premier League clubs pay these players wages, Marley. So is it not their prerogative that if they feel they're being released into a situation which isn't good for the player, that they can Keep them can prevent their services being provided to the national teams.
3: Yeah, it's it's a funny one, isn't it? Because you know who, where, where does the power lie here? You know, as you say, they don't get paid by international football. It's more more of an honour and a something you uh, you want to do, and everyone sort. I think I think you get a match fee or something, but half the time it goes to charity or whatever. So, um, yeah, it's I don't know. I don't know where this where I stand on this because I think if you're safe enough you should be all right, but there doesn't seem to be any like allowance for like the way I see it. You can travel anywhere you want. As long as you test there and test when you, when you're back and you're negative twice, then then that's fine. Um But you know, clubs are clubs are, are looking after themselves because they're the ones that, you know, they've got to pay them. So you can understand it from that situation. You can also understand it from a player's situation that they'd love to go and play for the country and help him. Cause that's what you dream of as a kid. Especially this South American. I
1: mean, you've got to assume that someone's—you've got to assume someone like Miguel on, for example—that he would have been in agreement with the club that he didn't go, because the club's not going to put their relationship with a
2: player at risk by withholding him from an. Yeah. I'm not sure that's true, though, Jim, because I think some of the reaction we saw from players like Edinson Cavani, for example, at Manchester United, I think it came out of the blue. I think it really did come out of the blue to the to the point where you know, I think Cavani, I mentioned on the show before, I haven't seen, what was the reaction that, from him? I didn't see that. So he posted on his Instagram with just a bunch of question marks. He screenshotted the statement from the Premier League and just posted a bunch of question marks. And, you know, Manchester United are unsure whether they're going to be able to have Cavani because Uruguay have got international fixtures this month, next month, November, January, February and March. And every time he comes back, presuming Uruguay stays on the red list, he's going to have to quarantine for two weeks at a time, which means that actually you're talking 12 weeks of the season three months he's not going to be available for Manchester United now that's a huge huge blow so actually I don't think the players were entirely clued up on this situation to be honest
1: well how do you feel about it then Niall in that situation that you just highlighted you've got Manchester United who are forking out what three months for a player with no access to him we're talking about at least half a million quid
2: probably over half a million quid in wages for a
1: player they can't access.
2: Yeah, I understand that point of view. But also, I think I mentioned this before as well, that especially in South America, playing for your national team is more important than playing for your club side, regardless of where you get paid from. I think Edinson Cavani feels more fire and passion playing for Uruguay than he does for Manchester United. And that's not to say he doesn't put in the effort when he plays for Manchester United, because he absolutely does. I mean, Miguel Almiron is a perfect example at Newcastle. The guy runs his socks off. You know, he might not have the best end product, but he'll put in a shift. But also, you know, you could argue that he feels more more valued and more pride when he plays for Paraguay. And I think that's totally understandable. I mean, his affiliation to Newcastle United is the fact that he got signed by the club and he's paid by the club and they're an employer. It's slightly different when you play for your national team who aren't an employer. It's got far more sentimental value to you as a person, I think, especially to the South Americans. So I think it's a really tricky situation. It's a bit of a minefield, to be honest with you. I can understand why clubs have vetoed allowing players to go to red list countries, because much like the Cavani situation, if he has to quarantine for two weeks at a time, you're basically paying for a player that won't ever play, which is just a disaster. Especially for someone like Manchester United who could do with Cavani's experience and know-how and ability. So I definitely think that there are questions to be answered here. And I think it's such a shifting landscape because it, does it not all depend on what the UK government say? You know, if the UK government say, OK, we're taking France onto the red list, that means Paul Pogba will have to stay at home. You know, it means that all the other players that play in Europe, for instance, you know, if they put Germany back on the red list, all of the German players like Timo Werner and Kai Havertz at Chelsea, they'll, you know, have to stay. They won't be allowed to go. Or if, if they do go, they'll be missing for two weeks because of a quarantine. And, you know, and I, I just think that it makes the situation difficult. And it's a tough one to really put your finger on what the priorities are. Because for someone like Edinson Cavani and and Raul Jimenez and all these South American lads, playing for Mexico or Paraguay or Argentina or whoever is the pinnacle. There is nothing better than going home, seeing your family whilst you do so, playing for your national team, being lauded as a hero. There's nothing better than that for those boys. You know, I don't care how many goals they score in the Premier League. That is their zenith. That is their pinnacle of their career. But for others, it's not quite as important. So it's a really difficult one to put your finger on, to be honest with you. And its I don't think it's any surprise or any um, shock, let's just say, that the South American nations are the ones who are really the most annoyed about this. Mm. I mean, these are unusual
1: times. This isn't Ryan Giggs having yeah. a mysterious injury and not being able to play in a Welsh-friendly game. This is really unheard of. I mean, it's a global pandemic, so it's going to be slightly different. And clubs have a right not to put their players at risk. For example, most footballers have a clause in their contract saying they can't go skiing because skiing is a dangerous sport, could result in a leg break, could put them out for months. Surely it's a similar thing with allowing players to go to red list countries, Mali. If it's not just the fact that potentially they have to come back and isolate. There's the potential that if you go into a red list country, there's a reason that country is a red list country. It's because COVID is prevalent and it puts the player at risk of contracting COVID. Yeah, I mean... I
3: don't know. Why, you know, why not just test though when you get back? Like,
2: you know... It's what? not just the player though, it's the staff who work at the football club, and everyone else. I mean, you've got to... Well, yeah, I mean, but... sadly, I mean, the staff inside Old Trafford are more important than Edinson Cavani playing for Uruguay, and he might not see it that way, but for me, that's the priority. But that doesn't stop you getting it in the first place. I mean... You...
1: Niall's got a point that you don't want to spread it amongst the football club but I'm saying you don't want an asset you don't want an asset getting COVID and we've seen although we don't know what the risk is to like a professional footballer are they less at risk that someone that's probably like you and me isn't quite as fit I, 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 I don't know but a lot of these players haven't been vaccinated as well I think there was a a few Premier League clubs released their statistics on how many players in their squads had been vaccinated. And the numbers are around 70, 80%, which is reasonably high. But they're the clubs that are willing to share that information as well. So you've potentially got unvaccinated individuals going to countries where there is high risk.
3: Well, yeah, but how, how often are they, you know, you say they, they go to the countries with the high risk. They're not walking around the streets, are they? They're, they're training. The training, they're in a hotel. They play a game. They come home. So it's not like they're they're going to delis and cafes and restaurants and stuff. Like you can stop them doing that if you if you say you know if you come to international football this week, you know we need to create like a bubble and and stay safe or, or do everything we can to stay safe. And then and then, then you maybe don't have to quarantine because we know exactly where you've been at all times. But you know if, if I suppose if you are letting them out wandering around, then you can you you sort of take that risk even more. So. I don't know. It's it's a tough one, this, because, you know, everyone's got a, a genuine sort of point, but money talks in the end and the club seem to have the power. But I feel sorry for Almiron because it's the one time he gets to play with good footballers. <laughs>
2: <laughs>
1: what do you think the likely outcome will be here? So these international football associations have lodged a complaint. They're asking for players who haven't been released to kind of face some kind of ban situation to be withheld i guess probably for the same period would be the logical solution so right you've you've not had this player so we're not going to allow him to play for what would have been the isolation period do you think that's what we're going to see happening or do you think this
2: will be a kind of slap on the wrist warning shot situation it's such a minefield jim i have no idea what the outcome is going to be and to be honest i'm surprised that Clubs didn't fear a backlash or come up with some sort of contingency plan amongst the 20 clubs because this was a unanimous vote, by the way. Everyone voted in the Premier League, all 20 teams voted to push this through to not allow international footballers to be released if they're on red list countries. And actually, it's a logical response if you think about it. It's a logical response, but actually in terms of what it means sentimentally to someone, you you can't ever analyse that or assess that because you're not that person. And I think it is such a minefield. I think, you know, it, it's an ever-shifting landscape and it's impossible to give an answer which makes sense um, and that pleases all parties. So I think it all boils down to the argument that should we even be playing international football at this point of time anyway, with the way things are going? You know, with the Euros going the way they did, I think that kind of basically remove the veil of of international football being a, a a difficult thing to 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 undergo during coronavirus times you know because the euros went went through and were completed pretty easily across the continent and no one was really worried about that there wasn't really a great deal of covid cases I, I, if i remember rightly during the euros there were no kind of whole teams wiped out due to covid cases um And I think because that went relatively smoothly, all things considered, I think now that kind of thought process that international football isn't really appropriate in the current climate, I think that's gone. I think that ship has sailed and I don't think we could use that as an excuse anymore. So it's really difficult. I mean, it's just the nature of the beast is that the Premier League is the most watched league in the world. It's a global league with fans all across the earth in different continents, in different countries. And with that, you're going to get players that are attracted to play here. And that is the situation that the Premier League finds itself in. In terms of an answer, it's so difficult to put your finger on what the right answer is. I mean, if Jimenez wants to play for Mexico, who are wolves to say, no, you can't play for your country. It's just one of those things where it's impossible to get right. And I I will watch this one with interest because I think at the end of the international break, when players start coming back, I think people will forget about it again until a couple of months' time when we have the next international break and then these questions will start popping up again. So I do wonder what the answer is. We'll wait to see what action, if
1: any, is taken. You can find the latest news on the Premier League where that action will be reported at sport-social.co.uk. After all, rules were meant to be broken and that was certainly the case with Manchester United and the Premier League who have broken their own shirt numbering rules in order to hand Cristiano Ronaldo the number 7 shirt at Old Trafford. We'll talk about that next on Football Social Daily.
0: Football Social Daily. Find more great sport at sport-social.co.uk Football Social Daily. Subscribe to the podcast now so you never miss an episode. Welcome back to
1: the final bit of today's podcast and we're going to talk about Manchester United and Cristiano Ronaldo who's got his legendary number seven shirt back at Old Trafford. The Premier League have broken their own rules by allowing Manchester United to give him the number seven shirt after the start of the season when it had already been assigned to Edison Cavani, which they are not supposed to do the exact wording. In the Premier League handbook says, before the commencement of each season, each club shall allocate a different shirt number to each member of its first team squad. Whilst he remains with the club, a player will retain his shirt number throughout the season for which it was allocated. In other words, you can't swap numbers halfway through a season, which is exactly what has happened. But this is more than just a shirt number being swapped. Marley, what does this mean? What does it tell us about how important Ronaldo is at Manchester United, and how important Ronaldo is commercially to the Premier League?
3: Yeah, I think that's what it comes down to—the the brand Ronaldo, um, how much eyes and how much shirt sales are going to be on, uh, like made as a result of of this decision. Um, strictly speaking, you know would. Would this happen for any other team and any other player? Um, well, maybe Messi if he came to the Premier League, but but I'm not sure. You know, if if uh, you know Joe Willock demanded the number four shirt and at Newcastle and Matty Longstaff didn't want to give it up, I'd very much doubt we would be going to the Premier League, knocking on the door saying, "Can you bend? Can you bend <laughs> these rules for us?" Um, so from that, yeah, I mean, you, you can take it as as one rule for one and one rule for another if if you like, but. Ultimately, it's uh, you can see why it's been done. It's um, you know, uh, Brand Ronaldo is one of the most um, commercially attractive players in the world, despite his past, and um, it's something that I think was always going to happen. To be honest, as soon as Daniel James left and Cavani wears twenty one for Uruguay anyway, so you know it, it was always going to happen. I thought. I
1: thought. Why do people care about football shirts, though, Mark? I mean, you're you're a a Newcastle United fan. You've got the legendary number nine shirt at that football club. I think probably that's one of the most iconic shirts in the Premier League. Do you really care who has it on their back? Do you think players really care what number they've got on their back? Yeah, I think I think everyone cares. Um, It's hard to sort.
3: Do you genuinely care who's got the number nine shirt? I'd love to say no, but I actually do. Um, (laughs) Less so, less so now when you get older um but it, i don't know what it is it's hard to put into words and not sound like an idiot when you when you're saying it because <laughs> at the end of the day it is just a piece of piece of plastic on a shirt you know so i don't know but there, there just is something with about that you know when legendary players have wore certain shirts and when legendary players carry shirt numbers around with them as is ronaldo as is messi you know, Shearer at Newcastle, for example. Um, it's just, I don't know, it's it's just something that feels right and, amongst football fans, players, and and clearly it goes through everyone because they become synonymous with that number. And then, I don't know, I, it's hard to put into words and sound, like sort of get it across to someone who doesn't understand it because they're they're ultimately providing... The, the logic to it, like, it's just a number. It literally doesn't affect your performance or anything. Like, it, it, it physically can't. But mentally, it's a different thing. Um And, you know, Ronaldo wants a number seven. Fine. Um, I remember he got unveiled at, um, at Real Madrid with the number nine shirt because Raul was still there. Um And then he, he had to wait a, a year or two before getting the number seven shirt there. So I couldn't see that happening again. Once you've scored 700-odd goals in your career, you know, it was
1: always going to... Happened for, for him that they shifted the rules a little bit. It does kind of show, I guess, how the Cristiano Ronaldo transfer came out of the blue for Manchester United, because if there had been a sniff of this three weeks prior, surely they would have made some kind of contingency plan for withholding that number seven shirt and changed Cavani's shirt number going in, going into the season beforehand. So it shows that it did kind of come out of nowhere this one. In terms of that red number seven shirt. Nile. obviously not everyone thinks it's as iconic as maybe Manchester United fans do, in particular former player Angel Di Maria, who said this week, I don't give a f- about the Manchester United number no. 7 shirt, which is the shirt he wore at Old Trafford. At first they talked to me a lot about it, it was just a shirt. My problem at Manchester United was the coach, Van Howe was the worst of my career. So this is an interview in the mirror with Angel Di, Di Maria, who isn't the most popular person at Manchester United nowadays, I don't think. Um, I mean, does that? uh, there's a lot to unpick there in that statement, I think, just a few words that probably means a lot. But does it kind of hint at maybe part of the problem as to why Di Maria's career at Manchester United didn't work? Because he didn't really get Manchester United. He didn't get
2: the club's history, which is an important part of playing for that football club. First of all, if he doesn't care about the number seven shirt, why has he got it tattooed on his arm? Has he? Yeah, the (laughs) didn't know that (laughs) so I mean there you go there's your first question um answered Uh, I I just think that's I think he's bitter he's very
3: bitter I think he's bitter
2: that it didn't work out at Manchester United and let's be honest not a lot of things did work out at Manchester United under Louis van Gaal I think they won the FA Cup and sacked him the morning after they beat Crystal Palace so actually you know in all fairness to Angel Di Maria um, you know, he was part of an era at Manchester United, which was almost doomed to fail. You know, straight after Sir Alex Ferguson left the club, David Moyes took over. You know, and David Moyes is still, in a way, bitter about how things ended at Manchester United. I mean, he always mentions how he doesn't feel he had enough time, and these things cut deep because Manchester United is a historical old club, one of the biggest in the world, and I think that. Di Maria, along with several others who have flopped at the club, uh, do feel that sense of regret and bitterness that they didn't succeed. And I think that's all it is from Di Maria. I think he was absolutely desperate to get out of England. I don't think he liked the climate. I I don't think he liked the culture. And I think that was evident in the way he played. And, you know, he lasted a season and he was gone. And he might blame the coach, but at the end of the day, he wasn't good enough. And it's as simple as that. And he's gone to PSG, won silverware, um, you know, he's he's won French League after French League after French League. Now he gets to play with his old mate, Leo Messi. So, you know, it, actually, at the end of the day, he's enjoyed himself, uh, Di Maria, since he left Manchester United. But I, I just I just don't think anyone has ever pined for him to come back to the Premier League. He's a good player. But even when he's played against United, there's been, I think, one or two occasions where he's put in good performances. But he's not been, you know, outstanding to the point where you think, oh, United should never have sold him it's yes, it's just it's just not one of those things where you look back on with regret if you're a Manchester United fan and go, oh, wish we never let Di Maria go. I don't think any other club has been interested in him since he left Manchester United because he was that poor. So, definitely think that um, there is, uh, it, that's laced with bitterness. I think it's foolish that you would make that sort of comment when you've got the number seven tattooed on your arm. So, I definitely think that there is, there is elements of that. I think that As you say, it highlights probably exactly why he wasn't a success at Manchester United. If you can't appreciate what the number seven means at Manchester United and the players who have come before him and the responsibility that that results in. It is only a piece of cloth with a number printed on the back, as Marley says. But for some clubs, it means more than others. So for my team, Portsmouth, we don't really have a number that means anything significant. I think that a lot of the time now as well, you get people referring to numbers as positions. So we know that a number nine is a striker, a number 10 is an attacking midfielder who plays in behind the striker, an eight is a box-to-box midfielder, a six is a more defensive midfielder. So actually, we, we use numbers nowadays to kind of describe positions. But for teams like Newcastle United, whose number nine was made legendary by Alan Shearer, who scored the most goals of any player in the Premier League of all time, and the number seven, who was you know, which was worn by George Best, one of the best players of his era in the sixties, Cantona, David Beckham, Cristiano Ronaldo—you're talking about greats of the Premier League and of Manchester United. And in Ronaldo's case, one of the best ever to play the game. So actually, if you can't appreciate that you were a number seven wearer at Manchester United, then you don't understand the football club. And I think that's an exactly exactly the point that you're trying to make there, Jim. So yeah, lots of questions. Um, over Di Maria's response but I think it just makes him come across as a bit bitter and a bit twisted over his exit let's finish on a contentious issue then what is the most iconic
1: shirt number in English football for a particular team is it Manchester United's number 7 shirt is it Newcastle United's number 9 I mean the obvious answer is it's West Ham's number 16 with uh, as <laughs> worn by the great Mark Noble But um, oh it's number 6 at West Ham Bobby Moore yeah well, of course it is but I mean yeah. a retired shirt as well
2: but, yeah. um, well, there we go. I mean, that's just that, that's, that's,
1: that, that's in English football. That isn't the most iconic shirt. I struggle, and it pains me to say, I struggle to see a more iconic shirt than that Manchester United number
2: seven shirt for exactly the reasons you listed. I think Bobby Moore six is in, as in, iconic in, as it, from it gets from an English point of view. He's won the World Cup. He was the World Cup. He was the captain of the England side that won the World Cup. That photo of him lifting the Jules Rimet on everyone's shoulders. And I know you can't see the number six, but that's the, one of the most iconic photos in football. Um, I mean, there's a statue of it um, on Green Street in East London. So um, I would argue, I would argue that, to be honest. Um, I mean, it was
1: before 1992 or whenever the Premier League launched. So it doesn't exist because that's when football started for a start. But <laughs> I mean, it, it's, it's a good shout. And in the, it is in the Premier League era, I don't know why I'm arguing against it.
2: <laughs> in the Premier League era, I see why you mean seven. I can see why you'd go for that. Marley, can you argue that Newcastle's better?
3: I think it's cute that you both answering arguing about that when it's clearly Newcastle's number nine. So <laughs> it's, uh, yeah. Do you know what this question? I should... win. I win.
2: Can <laughs> you just give me a list of uh, the Newcastle number nines since Alan Shearer? Didn't, didn't since Shearer didn't Andy oh, Carroll have it last season?
3: No, Carroll bizarrely had number seven last season. Oh, did he? Um, so Callum Wilson's got it this season. Uh, last season it was Joel Linton brilliant yeah um
2: (laughs) that iconic number nine which was inherited by Oberfemi Martins when Alan Shearer (laughs) yeah I think
3: it was Martins and then I think Cissé took it after Martins maybe um it was Carol then Cissé I think was it Carol then Cissé uh
2: then Cissé left in about 2016 so um I've got a list here Marley I can tell you so it went Shearer, Martins, Andy Carroll, Papi Cissé then it went to Dwight Gale and then it went to Solomon Rondon and now it's with Wilson.
3: Big Rondon. He should have had it for years as well. We should have signed him. But <laughs> there you go. He's at Everton. I might spot Everton, you know. They've got Rafa Benitez, they've got Rondon, <laughs> they've got um, Andros Townsend who we should have signed back in 2016-17. So, yeah might jack it in and get a blue shirt instead
1: of a black and white one. I think this feels like a debate that should be on our Twitter account later today, Marley, in terms of the most iconic shirts in the Premier League I want to see if anyone can argue against Bobby Moore Alan Shearer at Newcastle's number 10 and that iconic 7 United shirt, so at the sports social, you can find it there later, but that is it for today's Football Social Daily Niall, Marley, nice one Thank you boys. Thank you There'll be a brand new show on this channel tomorrow. We're going to be talking to ex-professionals from the beautiful game every single Saturday morning, discussing everything that's coming up in the Premier League weekend. Obviously, there are no Premier League matches this weekend, but they'll be talking about club issues and of course England's next World Cup qualifier which is on Sunday, Andorra as well so The Dugout, our brand new show starts on this feed tomorrow make sure you've hit subscribe so you get that episode as soon as it's ready and we'll see you next time on Football Social Daily
0: Football Social Daily Find more great sport at sport-social.co.uk
1: With the Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere